a lot of introspection on this call with Patrick Stapleton. 20 years of leadership, unique superpowers, just a really cool conversation about challenges, obstacles, opportunities, culture. I think you'll pick up on the fact that I had a lot of fun in this interview and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. This episode was brought to you by experience.care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today. Hello, and welcome back to LTC Heroes Live by Experience Care. My name is Peter Murphy Lewis. I'm excited because I'm talking to someone from the Boston area. Before we hit record, I was sharing that I went to school on the North Shore and always say that I've had two life-changing jobs. One was working in social work in Boston, and the second one was becoming a CNA in long-term care. With that as an introduction, I want to introduce Patrick J. Stapleton. He's the CEO at Cheryl House. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Peter. I've been looking forward to it. I've been a big fan of yours in the podcast for a while. I appreciate the kind words. Patrick, the history of your organization is unique, and I was going through some of the notes that you had with my co-host, Victoria. And I have some great quotes that I don't think you purposely dropped into a conversation, but I'm going to bring them up and ask you to elaborate on them. One of them that you say is, we are here for you, not for profit. I think that's your mission, but that is an amazing tagline. Do you know the history of where that came from? And what are the reactions? Do you get the same visual reaction that I had in that, wow, that is beautiful? Unfortunately, I didn't come up with that been here for a long time. And sometimes you need an outside agency to shine a blinding flash of common sense. So we worked with the folks at CBS to do some 30-second spots. And after the interview, they gathered as much history as they could about the facility and Cheryl House and its founders. About a day later, they came back with, what do you think of that? And it was like a complete home run. We absolutely love it because it really reflects what we're about. We're here for the neighborhood. We're here for the hospitals. We're here for families, not to make money. Thank you for the background. And it doesn't really matter if it comes from an agency because it had an impact on me. And as that's the first thing that I wanted to lead with. Patrick, let's dive into your initiation story. I know that you've been in leadership for over two decades, but tell me about when was the first time you got your foot in the door in either healthcare or long-term care and feel free to go into the details. Sure. Long history here in JP. When I was an undergrad at Salem State, my sister was the nursing supervisor for 3 to 11 at a psych hospital right down the street here of the Arbor. I came down, I went to school every day, worked 3 to 11 in the admissions office. It was a for-profit facility, did a lot of admissions, did a lot of discharges, learned the business of healthcare, but I absolutely loved it and loved the neighborhood. Flash forward to when I got to, out of graduate school, I had to do a internship. And part of the internship was working with General Hospital, who they had psychiatric units. And a lot of their patients came from nursing homes. A lot of Geriatric admissions to psych facilities are generally about medication issues and over and under medicating people. But I went out and visited a few nursing homes. The first one I visited was a place called Bolton Manor in Marlboro. Met a guy by the name of Mark Newtstat. I don't even know if Mark would remember this like I did. But I was fascinated by his approach and how he could spend time with me and really educate me that this was his business unit. In other words, this facility was his. He was owned by a corporation, but it was his responsibility, all the souls on board, whether they were patients, residents, or staff, or visitors, or doctors, were all his responsibility. And I just fell in love with kind of get to be an entrepreneur with somebody else's money. You really got an opportunity to do things. And it is a weird dynamic that my first job in a nursing home was as the administrator. 
I didn't work my way up. I worked my way up in healthcare, but not in the nursing home world. And when I got licensed and I got interviewed, it seemed like a perfect fit. I worked for a company called Mariner. They managed a facility right here in Longwood in Boston. So I've pretty much always been a downtown Boston guy and been very fortunate to have some tremendous mentors and peers that really kept me going. And I've been here for a long time and still love my job. Tell me about the human side of your growth into leadership, whether it be a specific challenge that you had to overcome that you always remember, the chip on your shoulder, like, wow, this kicked me, but I learned from it. It makes it's part of who I am. Or maybe a couple other mentors that you want to mention. Any personal stories that come up when I ask you that question? Well, I always think of the late, great Susan Bayless, an entrepreneur here in the Northeast in Boston. She always used to talk about the lunchroom care industry is an industry of young, poor women taking care of older, poorer women, meaning that the CNAs are the lowest paid on the bracket, but they took care of people, mostly women that were on Medicaid, no longer had any funds. And that dynamic really caught me. And I started to realize that I grew up in a house with three sisters and a super strong Irish Catholic mother. And then I had three mentors who were all women. And it started to click with me that I really understand what it takes to be successful. And I think I've been successful because of the experiences I've had and the mentors I've had and their accessibility when you had questions and you needed help and they were always there for me. But it really truly comes down to the history is the best predictor of the future. I've done a number of AITs, probably 10 or 11. I stressed all of them. Some of them have been guys and listen, if you don't work well with women in this business, you're going to have a very difficult future. So that I think is probably most important in my background. I want to move into culture and I have the notes from your chat with Victoria, and you said something that stood out to me, and I paused it and then rewatched the recording again. You said, we've survived many tough challenges because of our culture. I'm guessing one of them is COVID. Feel free to dive into that specifically, but are there any other challenges that come up when I remind you of that quote? No, it goes right to COVID. It's the challenge of mine and I'm sure everybody else's career. Anything that had happened before really pales in comparison. And we got, and when I say culture, culture really is driven by employees and they're our biggest asset. And we, pre-pandemic, we had a CNA, a certified nurse assistant tenure that would rival anybody in the industry, 10, 11, 15 year average employees, nurses that have been here a long time. And the thing that struck me most about COVID is that I'll get into the labor force culture change later, but the workforce stayed during COVID. It's when COVID sort of ended everybody started to retire. And I would say that was in the late 2022, 2023. Not that it ended, but it started to wind down. So our 35-year CNA stayed with us during COVID. They were part of the brigade that worked every day for over a year. And they just kept coming back to work. And it was because of the love they had for their residents and the love they had for Cheryl House. And those long-term relationships are gold. You can get a lot done when people trust you. And that trust comes from knowing people. What's the hardest decision you had to make during COVID? We were, I believe, I'm going to say don't quote me on this because this is live, but another great not-for-profit partner of ours, Chelsea Jewish, run by the great Adam Berman, and I at Cheryl House convinced our boards we were one of the first few facilities across the country that mandated the vaccine. And for me, actually, it wasn't really that hard a decision, but to pull it off is one thing. But then Massachusetts actually was smart enough to do an incentive plan to facilities that vaccinated a certain percentage of their employees. We were one of a handful of facilities that achieved 90% or higher in Massachusetts. 
And I think the number is like under five or six out of the 315 or 320 nursing homes in Massachusetts. So again, having those long-term relationships, having those conversations, staff having the confidence in our leadership and what we were doing and the efficacy of the vaccines that when you looked at our peers across the country, the averages are in the low 20s. Massachusetts has done a great job and they've really pumped the bar, but 90%, the air was pretty thin at that level. And like I saw a million times, the only way COVID could get worse is if we didn't learn from it. And I will tell you that was first part of the learning curve was the vaccination struggles. And it wasn't easy to get above 90%. And we, our goal was 100%, but it was very important for our coming out of COVID to be able to have that protection. Edric, my next question is going to be really odd. And you've said you've listened to the interviews a few times, so you probably know there's always at least one awkward point in the interview where I try to say something that doesn't come out clearly and I ask you to try to decipher what I'm saying. It has to do with going back to where you said working in a world with women and it has to do with emotional intelligence. And I, what I want to ask you is when you had to have that conversation with your staff about the vaccination, it was obviously way earlier than the large percentage of your peers in the country. How did you deliver that conversation? What were the things that you thought about in how you're going to do it? And I know, at least for me, the women that I'm surrounded by, I feel like they don't have to think about emotional intelligence. They have it. Sometimes I have to prepare. I have to think, am I going to sit? What's my tone? Am I going to ask a question? Am I going to talk about superficial things and then get into it? Do you remember the day when you had to go in and deliver, communicate the decision your team had made about the vaccination? Can you talk to me about that? Put me in the room. When we decided to do it, because again, we were hit very early on March of 2020, and it wasn't just me that had the conversations, because we not only do we have a senior level of direct care staff, we have a senior level of administrative staff, supervisory staff that had been there a long time. And again, I cannot tell you, those relationships are the ones that you could get somebody alone in the elevator, and I'd say, Peter, I still think you're on the list that you haven't gotten the shot. Can Can I bug you about that for a minute? And it was just getting them to understand that it was the only thing we couldn't speak for the efficacy of it at the moment because you just had to trust everybody. But it just felt like taking action and not just letting it go was the most important thing to do. So it wasn't the first conversation that did it. It wasn't the second. It might have been the 15th conversation. And we might have just drove people crazy. And I think that those peer-to-peer conversations, I one of the best things people call me that I think is so funny is that I'm Mr. Patrick to a lot of our staff. And that is just such a badge of honor that they call me that. But I think it also lends itself to that we really look at it like we're all in this together. And I needed people not to be sick. I needed people not to be in the hospital or to be in an event or be face down at an event. Like you heard so many panic stories in the media. And our staff was in the trenches every single day for 18 months. And I just needed them to realize that they needed to be healthy if they want to take care of the residents. And then I also tried to stress the importance of them not bringing anything home to their families because a lot of our staff have multi-generational families. They've got an 80-year-old mom, a 60-year-old parent, and then small children in the same home. And we just couldn't risk, or at least I couldn't risk, exposing them because they all worked. They had to earn a living, exposing them without arming them. And I, it really, truly, after a while, became a labor of love. I just wanted them to be okay. I love it. The thing that you said, and I want to highlight at least this is the part that I caught, which was instead of coming in and dropping off a piece of paper and just posting it everywhere, it's a conversation in an elevator. And then you ask for permission. Can I bug you again? 
So it doesn't sound like an HR thing. It doesn't sound like a compliance. It doesn't sound like regulators where it's, hey, you and I've known each other for 14 years. Just like sometimes you bug me about, hey, I need to tuck in my shirt or, hey, sometimes you need to bug me that I eat with my, chew with my mouth full. Can I bug you about this? Because this is what matters. I like that. I Thank you for sharing those details. I guess the next question I want to go to, what are your current challenges from an organization point of view? Are you trying to grow? Are you trying to recover from people that have left during COVID? Are you working on culture, retention? What are your current organizational challenges? Coming off a global pandemic, we are now immersed in a labor crisis. And it feels like early on, it felt like the pandemic was never going to end. But then we developed vaccines and we did things and we got better with infection control and we got rid of three and four bedded rooms. So there was concrete steps we took that things were going to get better. So now the labor crisis comes along and there are really no concrete steps because it's a different world now. I think one of my team's personal challenges that the work from home culture now is very different than it was before. We've got a group of people that are basically working from home and a group of people that are here every day. And it may seem unfair that some jobs can be done remotely and actually done better remotely. And I'm an old school guy. It took me a long time to realize that, it, and I'll say it took me over a year to understand that this is not going to change and that we just better adapt to it. So that's an organizational challenge. The real shiny stuff that I can champion the fact that we're diversifying revenue, that we're opening a hospice, we opened a hospice successfully, that we're opening a dialysis den. We've amped up the clinical game. My chief operating chief clinical officer, this guy by the name of Alessio Miniello, started a relationship with these LVAD patients. Nobody in Massachusetts was admitting LVAD patients to their skilled nursing facilities, and that's the left ventricular assistive device. And it seems very clinically complex, but with training and education, and if you start to do a lot of them, you get very good at them. So he and his group have added a whole new level of not just a new revenue stream, a whole new diagnostic category that we weren't taking care of before. And that builds on itself. And if we think we can do this, what else can we do? What other ways can we be more partnering with our acute care hospitals? I'll give you one hard example. An industry cratered during COVID, and that's the transportation business. They've had struggles like just we all have, and they really had a difficult time transporting dialysis patients to and fro dialysis every day that needed it. We decided that's it. We have to open our own dialysis den. And CMS, to their credit, they allowed, sometimes government does good things. They allowed the regulation change that allowed skilled nursing facilities to be viewed as outpatient dialysis. And as long as we partnered up and met compliance, we were okay. So we're opening a six-bed dialysis station early in 2024. The same thing with hospice. When you look at you're scrambling to try to your organization make it through this. You try to look at, is there any margin we're letting go out the door? That hospice, although it's a benefit you've worked your whole life for, very few people take advantage of it. And there's a lot of cultural differences on people accepting hospice care. And we had to get people to understand that, okay, we can do hospice probably as good as any of the partners that we had, and then we get to keep the margin. And it's not going to save the organization, but between the dialysis den, the hospice, the soon the outpatient rehab, and the new clinical programs, it's all seriously going to help. And that was our motivation was what's best for our patients. But then light dawned at Bobblehead that, wow, we can keep that revenue in-house and not let somebody else make money off our patients. That to me, I think, like most of the things we do here at Charles House, we do them because it's the right thing to do. And I'm, I'm sure every healthcare provider does that. And we all think we're special. We had a development consultant one day asked me about Charles House and me in front of my board. And I think we're special. And he stopped me and he says, 
I've never met a CEO that didn't think their organization was special. So let me stop you right there. And it was a humbling and awakening at the same time. But what it made me realize is it's the people in the organization that make the organization special. And that I'll go back to the long-term tenure employees again. I've been in this chair for 20 years in an industry that across the country, the turnover is around every 18 months. So I'll tell you that you gain a lot. I have relationships with the downtown Boston hospitals. I can text most of the CEOs because I've been here a long time and we have a good product. And all of a sudden now they need us as much as we need them because the dialysis patients were also locked up in acute care because no sniffs could take them because they had no transportation. So there could be a bone marrow patient in that bed that's sitting over at a major acute care hospital, not a dialysis patient that doesn't need to be there. Our academic medical centers measure their length of stay in hours, not days. That's how important it is. So the academic throughput, they need empty beds. They need reliable, skilled nursing facility partners that they trust and that now we share computer systems. So it really, I think, COVID gave us a seat at the table and acute care and allowed us to, I think, exponentially increase the partnership that would have COVID accelerated a lot of things more than just nurses' salaries. It accelerated relationships. It accelerated government interaction. I didn't really have the greatest relationship with all my city councilors before COVID or my state reps or my senators. I knew them all, but halfway through COVID, I'm texting them all or they're texting me because they were always assets for gowns, gloves, medical supplies, or just raising the alarm that we needed it. So state government, city government, acute care partners couldn't have come together that quick if it wasn't for COVID. And now those relationships remain. So I think we can capitalize on that too. I think that's the first time I've heard someone talk about positives of COVID and talk about partnerships. As a human, as a curious human being, I'm interested when individuals learned something. When were you able to express in those words and rationalize that was something positive out of it. You, it probably wasn't the first six months because you were in the middle of COVID. You were working 20 days in a row and not sleeping. Like, Do you remember when you were able to say those words to someone and explain how that partnerships was something new? Okay, confession time. Yes, I host the LTC Heroes podcast, and hopefully you know that by now, but I can't take all the credit. Jason Long, the CEO of Experience Care, told me two years ago that when we started this show, that this new audio platform had to create value for everyone, whether you're a client of Experience Care EHR or not. Then he encouraged me to become a CNA to really help LTC Heroes resonate with caregivers and leaders. And between you and me, he really knew what he was talking about. LTC Heroes has been invited to almost 10 conventions in 2022 to finally shine a light on what leaders like you have been doing for decades. It's that sort of knowledge of the industry that really makes me appreciate Experience Care, which has developed a customizable and intuitive EHR that makes clinical financial and billing processes more efficient and accurate. It transforms workflows into something that makes sense so you can focus on what really matters, caring for your residents. The software is used by ALFs, SNFs, CCRCs, big and small facilities alike. Countless users have reached out and shared with me that it really is effective in helping them improve outcomes. I can honestly say that I know my grandparents would be proud to learn that I work at a place like at Experience Care. And I just wanted to take the time to thank Experience Care for sponsoring this podcast. Check out their latest products at www.experience.care. Yes, absolutely. So testing was an issue early on. And then I'll tell you, it was so fragmented. It was everybody was getting into the business because they thought there was a margin to be made, but the results weren't coming back in time. The pickup, the drop-offs, 
So one of our relationships came through early on, April and May of 2020, that we could use their lab. And all we had to do was drive over the samples every day. And that was a job that was suited perfectly for me because I had the wherewithal to get around the hospital and know where I was going. But a month, I was doing it two times a day and it served a concrete purpose for me. I wasn't taking care of patients. I wasn't doing rehab. I wasn't doing those things, but it really allowed me to participate. And that's when I realized that I couldn't tell my colleagues that this certain hospital was doing this or they would be banging down the door there. So I, was, I had to keep it quiet. I would tell my trustees, how lucky are we? And that was because of relationships. And then of course, when the Broad Institute got good at it, that's where everybody went. But the early days was very difficult. And those day, and then again, supplies. I've met more than a few hospital supervisors on the back loading docks of academic medicine to pick up 50, 60 gloves and gowns for the next shift. We would walk in at seven o'clock in the morning and people would be like, they wouldn't go upstairs because we didn't have the right supplies. And we were running out of them and nobody could get them. And the big boys in acute medicine could get them and they did. And because of those relationships, they shared them with us. And we were the right people. We have a not-for-profit mentality that we'll try to serve the underserved. We have a very high Medicaid population, not very wealthy, not a lot of resources coming in, very few private pay patients. But again, go back to what you said at the beginning of the interview, we're here for you, not-for-profit. Our job is just not to lose money and go out of business so we can remain this valuable community asset. But it was that realization that we had something some of my competitors didn't have early on that really made me think, wow, we are lucky. And that's, I think, is probably the best example I can give of that. Love it. I want to ask you to take off your humble hat and tell me something that you're really proud of, either something you've done or decision you've made in the last two or three years. And if you feel comfortable to be as human as possible, it's not something that would ever make it in a press release. It's not something a reporter would ever want to put you in. And it could be that like, hey, for the last year, the first, when I walk in the office, this is the first person I go talk to, or I was able to retain this CNA because I helped them do this with their child or something that like you want your kids to know. And it you feel like it's the better version of you, the prouder version of you, something your family, your parents would be proud of. I would say this, my Irish Catholic background and humble beginnings came from a mother and father that had a work ethic that is kind of cuckoo. You allowed me to take my humble hat off. I worked over 350 straight days from March of 20 to whatever the end site of that was, but we actually realized it was a crazy amount. And it, when I say worked, I was just here. And I think if I was going to ask these people to be here and do this, I was going to be here and do this. I would buy lunch for everybody for months at a time and pass it out. Our board allowed us to do a I'm not going to, don't quote me on this, but I think that we were doing hero pay before that hit the modern vernacular. And about 30 days of COVID, my board heard from us that we need to do something here. We need to do something drastic. And increasing payroll by about $50,000 a week was pretty impressive, but it kept people staying. Again, it is really difficult. But then, like I said, after COVID, at the end of 22, probably halfway through 22, people started to resign. They didn't go to competitors. They either retired, they left the industry. And one of the things I will say is beyond the vaccination incentives program that we maxed out on, I think the other thing I'm pretty proud of right now is I've replaced a lot of senior people with people that are really quality people. And I did it with no recruiters. The Cheryl House name, hopefully my background, CFO, CCO, director of nursing, who stayed with us, just moved to the infection prevention role because she was so smart and been here so long, hired another DON, 
all of social work, basically all of admissions, rehab, and we did it all. And we did it over time. Bethany, director of development, we did this over time and we did it without paying for these people. If we had to, if I hired, let's say a couple million dollars of staff and I had to spend 30% of that in recruitment fees, that's almost another $700,000. So I'm pretty impressed with that. But my career's work is going to be, along with this team and this board, is going to be bringing Cheryl House back to really a sustainable place. We're at a difficult place. All the PRFs, the pandemic relief funds have ended. This is where the rubber's going to meet the road this summer, this quarter. Government's been good. They've helped us survive, but they've also built in this cushion that we now no longer have. And it didn't dissipate. It was ripped off like a Band-Aid, as the government program intended to be with a life support system, not something to keep you going forever. But rebuilding the team, I think, and being the central figure that has remained through it all has been very, very good for me, that I realized we still got it, that type of thing. This is more audio than visual, but I teared up when you talked about that because I appreciate you sharing the humble hat and working those amount of hours that obviously took a toll on your body and your mind and on your family. I know that your family's important because I read your bio. I want to talk and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you have a superpower with people. You attribute it to the name of Cheryl House, but there's probably something you have uniquely inside of you that helps for you to make that change and senior leadership and continue on and have that amazing care. And I'll share kind of two, I'm not going to call them, I guess for lack of words, I'll call them tricks or hacks or HR things that work for me, just to give you an idea of what I'm thinking of. I also find that I'm uniquely good at finding quality staff that are willing to sign on for a bootstrap budget and because of the mission. One of the things I do is one is I, my style is vulnerable. I'm guessing that's part of yours. Another one that I do is I have incoming candidates watch parts of a team in a team meeting of a recording so they see how much fun we have. Do you have anything unique when you are recruiting a director of nursing or you're going to a convention, you're like, I need to find an MDS coordinator or I really need a CNA who's going to stay with me for another 15 years? Any subtleties of your superpower that you can share that would like, this is how I'm going to hit a home run and this person's going to be better at long-term care than I am? It's funny. I hired some senior managers that you can ask any one of them. I walk into their office every now and then and I say, I just find it comical that you report to me because they're just, I don't know how it happened, but just absolute rock stars and they beget rock stars. So I talked about Alessio. He brought in this kid, Chris Moscatelli in rehab that has changed the game. And I'm not going to say any more names because I'll miss everybody. I'll miss somebody. But trusting people, and again, I think that I have made a decision on a hire with some of these people in minutes. And I can't describe to you what quality they had, but it was the qualities and the, the whole sort of ball game just changed. These people all came, most of them came from a for-profit world. And I think that they came here and we were able to show them that, wait a second, this is not about earnings per share. This is about star ratings. This is about quality. This is about patient and family feedback. And that's, we start our board meetings with a mission moment where we, my goal is to let people on the trustees and the executive committee know that this is why we're here. And we had a, a trustee that asked us to start with his mission moment years ago. And I was like, this is craziest thing I've ever heard. I'm going to talk about how good we are in front of everybody. Now I relish in the fact that I get to talk about how good the staff is because they're so good and they're so committed. And then that, to me, that's when I say power Charlotte House. People stay for a reason. And then we could counter that with, well, everybody just left. Yes, they did. But they stayed with us 
during the most vulnerable time and got us through it. And when they left with notice, they worked out their time, all the things that you just expect people to do, it's now you're appreciative when they actually do it. We're in a world right now where labor is so difficult to attract, but you got to retain them. And to retain them, there's got to be a reason that, you know, and again, I'll just say this, I'm not naive enough to think I don't want everybody to walk in the door and say, I can't wait to go to work tomorrow morning at Charles. I come from the other side. I just don't want to have an environment that they get here and go, oh my God, I can't believe I work here. So I just want them to have the supplies they need. I want them to have the hours they need. I want them to have the support they need. And we are absolutely one big crazy family. There's no doubt about it. I forgot about the COVID thing. When I would be talking to a 15, 20-year CNA, I would always say to them, listen, do you want Ari, her daughter, to get this? Because I know Ari. I've met Ari. I've known her since she was born. Or do you want Geraldine, your grandmother, to get that who you live with? Knowing all those facts, knowing all those things is only because we're exposed to each other for so long. And you just, the grind of daily life. And I'm not a guy that's going to be in an elevator and, and be looking on my phone. I'm going to use that opportunity to be like, what's up? How's the day going? What do you got? You got what you need? And if they don't have what they need, they'll tell me. Believe me. I find this thing all the time where they won't tell their own manager, but they'll rip me apart in a nice way in the elevator because they, I think the old adage that if the sailors aren't complaining, that means they don't think you'll listen. When people do complain to you, I use that as an absolute gift because I can make it better and I can try to make it better, but I can at least listen to them and they can see action. And that's what I think has been crucial. Love it. As we start to wrap up, Patrick, I have two questions for you around your day-to-day. The first one being, what's your favorite part of the day? If the board tells you, hey, Patrick, we have to cut back on your hours because you increased the salaries $50,000 a week for the CNAs and nursing, you can't come in on Thursdays. What are you going to come in on Thursday and do for free? Are you talking about me personally? Are you talking about- What's your favorite part of the day, favorite part of the week that you do for free? Hands down, operations group, every day at 8.30, 30, 40 of us around the table on Zoom now. The work from homers are there, and this is not an issue that doesn't get brought up from the previous day that can be made better today. It's where I'm at. I'm a nursing home administrator, so I usually say it. I walk into work and I see a clean parking lot that's well-striped. That just gets me excited, and I know that's pathetic. I see a dumpster that's clean, that not any trash on the floor. You go in the building, and if you walk in the morning and there's a light bulb out in the lobby... And as I'm walking out in the afternoon, somebody has fixed it. It's just basic stuff. And I'm very lucky that my threshold for happiness is is filled with such basic stuff. But I love the people I work with. I'm impressed with them every day. And the stuff they do and the stuff they've done in the past year, it's going to put us at a place where I think we're going to be around for another 100 years. My last question for you, Patrick, is what's something that might be inside of your job description, maybe something that another CEO is supposed to do, but it's hard for you. It's a challenge and you delegate, you have someone amazing on your team that does it better than you. And you're like, I'm supposed to do this, but I'm not good at it. You're way better. I'll tell you, fundraising has been a difficult adjustment, meaning that we looked at fundraising as something that used to be nice to something that is now absolutely necessary. We have a bunch of positions around here that don't get covered by cost reports. They don't get covered by third-party payers. Like we have a large expressive therapy department, music therapy department, and you're from Boston. So this will, you're not from Boston, but you worked in Boston, it'll ring your bell that we have a great relationship with Berkeley School of Music. They have interns that turn into full-time staff here as music therapists. And that right there, that is a main reason why I had to, when I met 
Bethany's type, and I say that my former development person's dad, I introduced himself to him and he says, yeah, you like my daughter? Yep, she's good. She shakes hands like this, asking for money. And I just thought to myself, that's exactly what it's about. It's about just bringing the basic bottom line that we have needs that nobody else is going to cover and they're impactful to our residents. So I cannot tell you when you have a young Berkeley student, a guy or a girl walking into a patient's room, strumming a guitar, and that I look back and go, that talent is amazing. You'll see on LinkedIn today, if you get a second, we put up our video, which was three years ago today. It was Alicia Keys, good job. But one of our Berkeley students, who is now the full-time director of expression therapy here, sang it. And she sang it, and it was about Cheryl House and the flash photos of how we went through COVID. I, it is an absolute trigger. I sent it to the board today. I sent it to executive committee. I sent it to God and country, put it on LinkedIn, because to me, it just, we cannot forget what COVID has done, the good and the bad, to our industry. And we had to learn from it. And I'll tell you, it's a trigger. I see that video and I just start to weep openly. It happened again earlier this morning. And I said, that's good. Now I'll have it all out when I talk to Peter and he brings it up. Because I'm very impressed that I got through this interview talking about the COVID experience without tearing up because it was tough. Thank you for sharing. Patrick, I'd like to. I do have one more question for you. And it's probably my oddest question. I saw in your bio that if you're not working and you're not with your family, you're on the golf course. How has long-term care either affected your golf game or how has your golf game affected how you approach residents in long-term care? My golf game has uh, taught me to be patient and resilient and things can get better and get worse very quickly. So you can't celebrate the birdies when you know a triple bogey's down the road. You just got to be more focused on the outcome. And that's finishing the round of golf and getting home that night. And that's just like being here every day. Nothing really freaks me out anymore and nothing really makes me super happy because I know it'll be fleeting. Love it. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me on LTC Heroes. It's a pleasure. Hopefully our paths cross in person one day. And when I'm out in Boston, I'll come knock on your door at Cheryl House. Thank you so much for your time. Please do. Shoot me a text. Love to meet you in person. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.